Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple movies around a theme of our choice. Chris, how are you today? I'm very good, sir. It is very hot. Uh, I have recently come off of a couple of 2023 theatrical viewings, which have left me a little bit despondent about the state of cinema. So I am super excited to be talking to you today about two, I think, not only excellent films, but to shed the light on uh, an actor who I think gets far too little notice. Uh, at least that was the case in his lifetime. So things couldn't be better. <laughs> How are you doing today? I am, I am, I have two thoughts that are contradict each other. One is that I absolutely want you to expound on the terrible movie going experiences uh, that you recently had. However, I also want this to be a safe space for you to either uh, <laughs> pursue that or not pursue that as you see fit. So know that I would be supportive of either decision you make. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely bring them up in recommendations because I will say right before we started recording, I have uh, turned the wheel around and I have now also seen a 2023 film that as of today, as of two hours ago, is my favorite film of 2023. <laughs> okay, you know so, what? <laughs> if we could somehow turn this into like a productive, positive discussion of new movies, then that actually sounds like a healthier way uh, uh, to spend our time than just uh, I will spend very little time on the bad movies and I'll spend more on the good one. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. And I think that that actually is a great sort of, I think that's a great way to sort of introduce this episode. Um, because at the end of last episode, we were uh, doing my favorite thing, which was to plan out podcast uh, plans <laughs> while actually recording a podcast. And we... Um, we talked about the possibility of doing a Roy Scheider episode. And... Uh, and unfortunately, we don't. Well, while we tend not to aim for timeliness with the passing of uh, Mr. William Friedkin, uh, it would appear as though this episode is going to be a semi uh, William Friedkin episode as well. Um, the I remember specifically in in my college years, uh, one of my favorite things to do with my uh, roommates would be to pick an 80s action star, um, your Stallones, your Van Dams, your Chuck Norris, that kind of thing, and then would just watch those terrible movies. Sometimes we would find their autobiographies and read portions of them in between movies, like it was some kind of, I don't know, like scriptural reading or something. It was the worst uh, and yet best time uh, we could have, and there's no way that Roy Scheider fits categorically into this. However, uh, on Friday night, I watched both of our movies back to back and I had myself a Roy Scheider Palooza and it was <laughs> quite possibly one of the best ways I could have spent my time this week. I don't necessarily have a lot of like grander Roy Scheider thoughts, um, other than he tends to be good. Um, but I'm sure that as we go through our two movies for uh, today's episode, we might be able to come up with a thought or two in our brains. Uh, do you have any thoughts before we jump in? Yeah, the, the only thing I'll say is I, I think if we're talking about, um, if we're talking about Roy Scheider, uh, I, I, I agree with everything you said. He maybe doesn't fit the mold, but I think he's an actor who always brings something unique to every role he plays. And he, he almost quasi fits into the eighties action. He was the star of uh, early eighties kind of action movie, blue thunder with like the experimental super helicopter thing. He was the star of that and was really good, but he is, I, I think he's the perfect example of an actor who is a tool like in the hands of the right director. And when you're talking about, who we're talking about today, William Friedkin um, and Bob Fosse. You can go back to 75. I mean, he was the star of Spielberg's Jaws. Uh, used correctly, he is, I, I think he's just an incredible talent. But even when he's in slightly schlockier fare, there's always an interesting kind of elegance to his performance. I think so much of that is his face. He has one of the great faces of Hollywood. Um, He's just an all-around fantastic um, person. He's someone that I grew up with. I always saw him in movies on cable, 52 Pickup, and things like that. He was always someone who was around and kind of in my television and movie-going eyesight. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, I don't know if this is true, so I'll need your brain to back me up. Is this the first time we're highlighting an actor on Cinema I, Duel, I as opposed to was thinking, yeah. a director or a writer or anything like, like that? This, and I really like that, even though we hadn't planned 
specifically in it in terms of that. I do like that Roy Scheider is sort of our first. Me too. Yeah. And as we think about the possibilities of doing more actor themed episodes, uh, I'm I'm just I'm just tickle pink that he ends up being uh, uh, number one because (laughs) it doesn't seem like an obvious choice. But he I mean, the the movies were like just to foreground. We're about to talk about two amazingly excellent movies. So uh, <laughs> if, if he's the glue that holds this episode together, then God bless, uh, then God bless Roy Scheider. Um, why don't we uh, get straight to it? Why don't we talk about Sorcerer? Our conversation on Sorcerer, which came out in 1977, and as we mentioned, directed uh, by William Friedkin. Um, I just want to sort of uh, tell tell a quick story about my own exposure to this movie, uh, which was that uh, a whole bunch of years ago, I think probably around the time that it was finally being released on Blu-ray, I had been told, hey, there's this movie, it's called Sorcerer, it's good. And there was no real further context to um, why like or given to me as to like what it's about, why it's good. Um, and I, especially as we get ready for, as we potentially have been sort of talking about the possibility of doing a full dedicated episode to freaking, this is good sort of like homework for me. But like the first time I saw it, all I knew was the name and that it's like secret masterpiece. Um, Probably has to do with how it uh, underperformed uh, at the box office, especially relative to movies like Star Wars coming out and just sort of changing the face of, you know, movie going in America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with just the name Sorcerer, here's a movie, go see it. I absolutely was not prepared for what the movie actually was. What I expected going in was a movie about fantasy and wizards and shit. Um, (laughs) So I really appreciated uh I mean, I, I liked it the first time for sure, um, but all these years later, coming back to it um, and having now watched a little bit more of uh, Friedkin stuff, especially stuff like The Exorcist in the last year or two, I finally got around to watching. Um, the, 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 the For people who, if you, if you have not seen this movie, I imagine that, uh, especially with Mr. Friedkin passing away, I've seen a lot of people watching it in the last couple of weeks, so like... Probably this is the time to watch it now. Uh, but if you haven't, let first of all, I just want to dispel this is not a fantasy movie in the least. Uh, this is a movie about, well, I guess the, probably the easiest way to describe it is that it's a, it's a remake of The Wages of Fear, which is to say it's a movie about four dudes, two trucks full of explosives uh, that have to drive across incredibly dangerous terrain um, and are likely going to die and they take this job because they are um, basically at the ass end of nowhere with uh, no real other choice. Uh, And so they take this incredibly dangerous job to try and escape their terrible lot in life. Um, That's, and, you know, from there we can, we can talk a little bit about, you know, the differences between wages of fear and sorcerer, if you like, or we can just sort of get into, you know, how this specific movie is, but Chris, what is, what's your history with Sorcerer? So largely the same as a lot of people, because it wasn't readily available for so long on home video, I was always aware of it and super aware of that poster. If you've never seen the poster for Sorcerer, it, it highlights one of the, not only the best moments in the film, but like one of the best moments in all of cinema, which is the attempt to drive a truck in the middle of a storm over this broken down kind of rope bridge. Um, when it finally came out, um, same as you, I heard about it when it was finally getting a um, authorized remastered Blu-ray release. I think it was like in 2012 or 2013, kind of that along the same right. time. Yeah, as Freakin's memoir was coming out, and uh, he had d- done something. We, we we definitely need to do a Friedkin episode at one point because he there's a weird similarity to Lucas where he he played around with this to really execute on what he wanted his vision to be. So he played with the color tones and, and enhancements um, when this was done for Blu-ray. So I finally got a chance to watch it. I was aware of Wages of Fear. Uh, so I had seen that film. And this is, I, I, I hesitate much like Friedman did to call this a remake. It's not so much a remake of the film, but kind of a his interpretation of the 
book um, by uh, Georges Arnaud, um, who had uh, the novel with which The Wages of Fear was based on. He had fought to get the rights. He had talked to everybody and was very clear that, like, I have my own vision of what I think The Wages of Fear is. And when I finally saw it, um, I've seen it now probably three or four times, and I'll just, I'll finish up by just quickly saying, because let's jump into the story, let's jump into the performances and some of the differences. I think this is Friedkin's best film. I think it is better than The Exorcist. Um, the Exorcist is probably one of, one of, if not the best horror films ever made, but I don't think it's a perfect film. And we can talk in my recommendations, I'll talk about it. There's like one thing that completely just bothers me and takes me out of The Exorcist. There is nothing like that in Saucer. I am completely glued to the film from the beginning until the very last incredible moment of this movie. Um, so for me, it's hands down the best Friedkin film. Um, it's one of my favorite films ever. Uh, it is a, a film that I gave the rare honor of five stars on Letterboxd because I am notoriously fickle about my star giving in Letterboxd. But uh, I love this movie, John. I, yeah, I... <laughs> listeners to the podcast may or may not know just how much hay is made in text messages about uh, our willingness to give movies five stars or not. Um, and you can guess who may be more likely to give five stars than the other. <laughs> um, I did the extra bit of, cause I hadn't seen wages of fear before. Um, but when you had said you had preferred it at the, uh, in the last episode, you mentioned you had preferred sorcerer to wages of fear at the risk of losing your credibility. I was like, well, that sounds interesting uh, enough for me to want to check it out. And I think that, I mean, a, I agree with you now having seen both. Uh, but I think what I like about sorcerer is that while like in wages of fear, it kind of launches you, into sort of the the plot a little bit faster but it takes longer to sort of develop and the 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 character backstories that you get are sort of sprinkled in throughout the the conversations that happen and while in theory that would uh like i kind of like that i like the way it's organized a little bit more but it does sort of even though uh it's organized, even though I think what H of Fear is organized a little bit better, but it does just has, ha it takes place over a longer period of time. The way that Sorcerer actually takes time at the, to front load all of the character baits that you get from all of our protagonists, um, with their own little vignettes. <clears throat> and then when you get there, it's just straight go time. You hit like the biggest beats of Wages of Fear and then you're done and you do it in half an hour less time. Um, there's something about that that I think is, um, it ends up being more effective uh, f for me. Yeah, well, and I think part of that, I'll, I'll disagree with you on this. I think Sorcerer is beautifully structured. I love the way that it's set up by, you have the four vignettes, which to your point, introduces you to each of our main characters, gives you the backstory, gives you really what this film is about. It's about desperate people, right? It gives you and shows you the desperation that these people are in, the thing that drove them to this remote South American village to escape the problems and trouble that they put themselves in. And then it, after getting that all out of the way, it then jumps into, okay, and now, uh, for those of you that don't know what Sorcerer or Wages of Fear is about, um, in Sorcerer, they're in the South American um, village in the middle of nowhere. I think this was actually filmed in the Dominican Republic. And there is a corporation there that does a lot of oil drilling, and there is a huge oil fire. And they need to extinguish the fire. The only way they can do that is to blow it up. If you've ever seen a movie like John Wayne's Hellfighters, a lot of the people fight um, oil fires with explosives to kind of suck out the oxygen and, and put the fires out. The problem is the only dynamite or explosives they have is are these crates of nitroglycerin that uh, have been left to sweat for years and are very, very dangerous. So these four desperate men volunteer for basically a suicide mission to transport uh, these cases of extremely dangerous uh, nitroglycerin dynamite e explosives, 200, I think, in 18 miles in these rickety trucks to get to the scene of the fire to put it out. And that is what, like, the crux of the film is about. Um, but structurally, I just, I love the small vignettes. I love the taste you get of everything. I love the color palette that Friedkin uses um, 
to kind of uh, differentiate each of the four places, um, it, it, especially when it gets to when we, we talk about the four people. Um, there is the um, the French banker. Uh, his name is escaping me at the moment. Um, Manzon. Yeah, Victor. Uh, it, it, Paris is so beautiful and delicate, and there's outside the restaurant and all these flowers and all of this this fragility there. And then you get to Jersey, <laughs> which is very much 1970s New Jersey as I remember it. And it's just kind of dirty and gross and a little gray and a little blue and a little cold uh, where Roy Shatter's character is. I love how all of that is set up. And then when you get to South America to actually start the plot proper, um, and this is one of the, the conscious tweaks that Friedkin made when he remastered this for Blue Way. I, I wrote in my letterbox review, I don't think I've ever seen green this green in a film before. Like he purposely desaturates and then resaturates and then tweaks the colors and makes things pop. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but uh I, I would be remiss, John, if, if, if we didn't start to talk through framing structure, basic plot. Um, there's been a lot of talk about when this movie did fail in 77. One of the huge pieces that Friedkin blamed it on was Roy Scheider. That he certainly wasn't his first, second, or even third choice, despite the fact that they worked together on The French Connection. Um, and Scheider also you know, had come off of Jaws, one of the biggest films of all time. Um, so we should probably, let's talk a little bit about Scheider and his character in this movie. I, I think that in this particular film Roy Scheider as being um and I and I definitely caught this especially as we were talking about uh, when I would later watch Wages of Fear 2 that this was absolutely an element of um of that movie as well that is that's carried over is the sort of dudes from disparate backgrounds and uh countries and cultures all just in the absolute worst lowest points of their lives being driven to this place um and the uh, and the fact that for most of these actors, uh, they are people who I admittedly don't recognize from other other places, um, but they, uh, you know, they're they're all incredibly effective at uh, at their roles. And I think that what I like about Roy Scheider here is that I think he slots neatly into uh, the the role like his part in this movie even though he's the guy you recognize because you've seen jaws um or you know other movies he's been in but he he he's he feels like a, a similarly cast in a way that the others are as well which is that you want someone who fits into the larger tapestry of what the movie is trying to go for the hardened down on their luck um uh, folks and i think that that potentially could account for like that could be a bug and a feature i suppose if you want to talk about the movie's failure if he's not sort of <clears throat> if he's not grabbing the spotlight if he's part of a larger ensemble then maybe i don't know if that's a i don't know how that does for box office returns but i actually think it works to the film's benefit that like if you had had someone who uh if you had had someone who was doing more star powery kind of things, then I think that I don't, then I'm not sure the film would have, or, or I think the film would have worked differently. I don't know if it would have been better yeah. or worse, but so imagine if you will, a world where the Roy Scheider, the Roy Scheider character is played by Clint Eastwood, who was one of Friedkin's choices. I could, I, I guess I could see that like I, I, but it, it feels like it would be much more of a, Clint Eastwood starring vehicle versus right. uh as as opposed to a group of four dudes who uh are desperate and need to drive this this these trucks across. Um you like you like the fact that Roy Scheider like spoiler alert is the guy who makes it like who is the guy who makes it to the end to drop off the dynamite uh like that feels less as a foregone conclusion than it would have been if you had had Clint Eastwood doing it. I guess that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I think you, you run into the trap of Clint Eastwood being Clint Eastwood. And you know, I love Clint Eastwood. He's made some great films. But some of the things that Scheider has to do in this movie, he has to play desperate. Uh, he has to get incredibly angry. He has to get incredibly physical. Um, 
uh, he has to basically almost die, right? So, um, the the four people picked, we, we didn't really talk about who they are, but one is, um, we believe ostensibly, although he could come from anywhere, he is an assassin that we first meet in Mexico killing somebody. One is a Palestinian rebel um, who is fleeing um, Israel after uh, launching kind of a launching an attack there. And then the, the other one, of course, is the French baker um, who is uh, about to be going to jail for kind of fraudulently playing with fun. So he escapes. Uh, Scheider is the gangster. He, they, they, him and his crew rip off a church. They shoot the head priest, who is the brother of the local mafia boss. Um, so now he's wanted and he has to kind of make an escape. So he's, he's all there. Um, as they go through this, this journey, one of the things that I love about Scheider is he, he's willing to play. He plays the smooth, quiet, kind of tough guy like he's kind of unfazed there's a great sequence where he is um arrested uh because he doesn't have valid papers they're 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 fraud papers that were made to get him into the country and it's a great tense moment where you're trying to figure out what's going to happen and what happens is they let him go but for every three dollars he makes one dollar has to go to the crooked police who have arrested them so he plays that beautifully but then he also plays just nasty and mean he purposely is hoping that the other truck it's two trucks two drivers he's hoping the other truck dies or explodes so that he can make twice the money to get out of the country and then when he is finally foiled at one point in the film he has to play just like at the end of his rope freaking out desperate screaming and yelling it's hard for me to picture like a Clint Eastwood or someone with more star power jumping into each of those kind of modes as effortlessly as i think Scheider does that's something that i i think when you have much more of a star wattage power you're much more going to have to acquiesce to what that star can do. And I think one of the great things about Scheider is he can do all those things and he does them all pretty well without seeming like he's stretching. Yeah. I th- I think also like the, I mean, we, I, it would be insane. I think for us to also um, talk about this movie without spending at least some amount of time on the, soundtrack uh as well for this movie because we talk about structure and how the four like all your exposition gets more or less happens at the beginning with the four vignettes and then once you get everyone into the trucks it's pretty much straight go till the end um the the parts i think that like the, the the sequences with the trucks driving and the focus on the wheels, especially when you're doing the bridge or when you're trying to blow up the uh, the tree that's uh, blocking the road. So much of those things are like in the small like procedural details that generate all the tension. But before you even get to the actual real dangerous parts of what you know this movie is going to be um you have a fantastic uh score by tangerine dream if if i'm not mistaken i think this might have been their first time doing this um and this this score sort of like even before you get to the actual dangerous parts the score is there to sort of set what is it, it works incredibly well but is for the for the time and look of the movie it it almost feels like like one step too it's almost too ahead of its time i think what does that does that does that track for you like it feels like it should like i when, totally. I, when I think of tangerine dream i think of like thief uh yeah. for for movie soundtracks right another insanely stellar soundtrack yeah yeah uh, you can't discount um, and and again more power to friedkin right uh, the the exorcist if you know anything about the exorcist you know the theme which was taken from tubular bells by mike ofield something that we were talking about offline his very next film he gets tangerine gene who yeah this very merry this very well may be excuse me, one of their earliest scores, but they've done Thief, they did Legend, they did Risky Business, they did Michael Mann's The Keep, they did Firestarter. Um, They are, for an electronic band uh, that you would think would be so limited by just kind of how artificial the sound is, they beautifully evoke the moods and the tensions and the releases of this movie. I, it, it was one of the things that immediately jumped out to me watching this in addition to how beautifully the, the film is uh, photographed and how the colors pop. It's definitely that Tangerine Dream soundtrack. And I mean, 
without necessarily getting to the ending just yet, I feel like the ending, like I remember last time we talked about how amazing the ending of taking a Pelham one, two, three is just the absolute, like the, the, the big, like, punch in the face crescendo like just the quick punch of like this is uh, of that last shot of walter Matthau's face and then you cut to the end i feel like the ending of this movie ha- produces a similar effect and at least part of that is driven by how the soundtrack which once you get to the meat of the the movie there's not as much of because you don't need like the movie itself i think or what you're seeing itself is enough to sort of have your you know gripping your armrests but when uh when that is all done and the ending happens and the score kicks back in yeah i was like i was yelling i was <laughs> i was like that is so, that was so that was so great so I, I i wanted to make sure we had a little corner of this episode dedicated to uh to tangerine dream it's a movie i realize i don't think i'll ever get tired of seeing um and so much of that i I think is due to Roy Scheider's face. Freaking again, uh, like a master of close-ups, just using the face. And I never noticed before, but just watching this time, like Roy Scheider's nose, he's got such a distinctive nose. It's almost like it juts out from his forehead further than most noses maybe should. It's both prominent and somewhat flat. Um, He's got these incredible puppy dog eyes that are so emotive. And I think as much as that face may do in this film, I think that face goes to like obscene levels of expression when we talk about his next film. Um, So I... Again, I had said to you earlier, and you made mention that I might get my my film nerd cred taken away because I prefer Sorcerer to Wages of Fear. But the fact that I acknowledged on this episode that I prefer Sorcerer to The Exorcist may actually more. Let's just <laughs> let's just get cred. everyone mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'll I'll explain during recommendations, um, and you may disagree with me, but we'll see where it goes. But well, I've got nothing else for Saucer just besides if you have not seen it, now it is readily available. Oh, man, do yourself a favor and see this movie. It is absolutely worth seeking out. Uh, I, I When I was looking, I didn't see it stream widely streaming available. I think you could do like a digital rental or something. But like just if you have the if you're a person who has any preference for like physical media, just get the Blu-ray and uh, uh and, and give yourself a good time. I will say that between this movie and cause you, t- you, you, you circle back to Roy Scheider's face. Uh, my last thought about this movie is that between this movie and the next movie, um, this is easily the sweatiest, uh, episode, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. that we have ever recorded. <laughs> the, the amount of sweat across both movies is just through the roof. And uh, a question to think about during the break between segments is which movie is sweatier, (laughs) but uh, we will uh, ponder these thoughts and more um, as we transition to our next movie, which is all that jazz. So hot off the heels of uh, Sorcerer, we have further evidence of just how great Roy Scheider could be because he is the star of Bob Fosse's award-winning 1979 quasi-memoir autobiographical film, All That Jazz, uh, which is about a very famous um, Broadway director, choreographer, and film director trying to juggle all of these things at once along with the various multiple women in his life, whether it's girlfriends, ex-wives, daughters, dancers, what have you. Um, It is obviously a very thinly veiled uh, movie about the life of Bob Fosse, directed by Bob Fosse, co-written by Bob Fosse, but starring Roy Scheider as the Bob Fosse stand-in, Joe Gideon. 
who is in the process of putting together um, a brand new Broadway show while he is editing and putting the final touches on his film about the life of a very famous and raunchy stand-up comic, very similar to what Bob Fosse was doing at the time as he was putting the finishing touches on his Lenny Bruce film, Lenny, with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, John, there is so much about this movie um, that I find incredible. Fosse's use of movement. This is a person who, you know, mainly known for choreography and putting on musicals where the audience is basically looking at one view the entire time. Um, and there's a lot of movement within that very still frame of the stage. So I was shocked and so pleased the first time I saw this with how great um, Bob Fosse is at understanding the language of film, understanding editing, understanding camera movement, understanding that a film is different than a musical and it has to be kinetic. This is one of the most kinetic films I have ever seen. Uh, it is also, I will put maybe put my money here as this is the sweatiest film I've ever seen. Saucer is extremely sweaty, um, but Saucer doesn't relish in the sweat <laughs> like all that jazz does. Um, whether it is sweat from dancing, whether it is just being soaked from all of the showers we see Gideon take as he starts each morning with his wonderful uh, hot coffee, Dexedrine, which is speed, Alka-Seltzer, and looking in the mirror and saying, it's showtime as he applies eye drops. This is a wet movie. Uh, it is very wet. wet. It is very wet in multiple ways. Um, but uh, two questions for you. One, um, Scheider as the Fosse stand in. Uh, this is something very different than we've probably ever seen Roy Scheider do before. And two, I am almost certain that the boots he wears throughout most of the film are the boots that he wore in Jaws on the boat. What do you think? <laughs> I would not be able to, within a reasonable scope of this podcast, answer the second question. Uh, but uh, as but did far you as think about that at all during the movie? I could I, not I, take my eyes off of his boots. <laughs> Between this and Andor's feet, I have started to ask some questions. Um, so no, on, unfortunately, I know I didn't clock that. Of course, was the second that we stopped recording. I will review the evidence and uh, and give you a response to that question. His um, outfit is fabulous, but he's wearing oh, fisherman boots, and I don't know why. <laughs> the you in, in the last segment you talked about him being a tool in in the way that directors can use him effectively. There's something about the sort of like like there there's something that is I feel solid about Roy Scheider. Something that is like just there's something tangible and um and this is supposed to be a man like he's supposed to be the Bob Fosse stand-in. I actually it, I I would have to Google image search to see what uh, Bob Fosse actually looked like. But he but Roy Scheider is a person who is both supposed to be incredibly physical like in his, in all of his choreography and all of his movement and he is a man who fucks <laughs> like, and, and there's something that I, I watch Roy Sh and, and I've never, and I don't think you could say that about any other Roy Scheider performance, but you watch Roy Scheider as uh, Joe Gideon in, in this movie and you go, yeah, that is absolutely a man who fucks anything that gets within reach of him. Like he, uh, <clears throat> and that's, and that's, the, and I think there's something like something about how like i guess how he physically presents himself in this movie and of course highlighted by the the costuming the boots the the, the makeup um there's just something about the way he moves through this movie that is just uh uh mesmerizing to look like and of course that's i mean <laughs> bob fossey probably knows how bob fossey moves so uh, <laughs> I, I i imagine a the credit probably needs to be split between actor and director here um I th you you talked about this being a quasi uh like auto, uh, quasi autobiographical movie and of course Bob Fosse did not die when he was uh, staging Chicago and trying to edit Lenny uh, at the same time that that's not a thing that happened so it's not <laughs> a full it would be weird <laughs> to 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 direct a movie about your actual death uh while dying but um I w I re-listened to the blank check episode on this movie in which the 
uh, in which it was discussed uh, with the guest Lin Manuel Miranda, who actually brought a copy of the original draft of this, uh, the first draft of the script for this movie, with him to the recording, and basically is like, "Here, you can see all the spots where in this in the first draft of the movie, none of the names are changed. It's just yeah. Bob, uh, Patty Chayefsky, uh, uh, Ver- Ver- Verdon, like like all of it's all of the people in their real life. Every single person in this, almost every single person in this movie is someone in Bob Fosse's life, and then they just change the name." Uh, to for legal reasons so that they don't get their asses sued and in fact it goes so even so you mentioned the dexedrine that forms part of his uh morning ritual apparently the address on the dexedrine is one street removed from bob fossey's actual street address they just changed the one number <laughs> so oh, that man. that is how <clears throat> like while there's absolutely the, the 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 second half of the movie where we're focusing on like the death delusions and all that stuff that is where it gets into that's where it gets away from the the biographical side of it but the uh um but otherwise this is just very much written as a bob fossey talks about his life as he sees it and then we're going to just put the barest legal veneer necessary to uh, to make anyone think otherwise. Yeah, which I don't think certainly doesn't invalidate the view that this is a biographical film. It is a biographical film, yeah. but it's still a film. It is still a fictional narrative, right? And one of the things that I was reading as I was going through a lot of the reviews for the film, uh, especially more modern reviews as people come back and revisit it, it's like, well, you know, Fosse was kind of a shithead and a dirtbag, and he really treats himself well in this movie. He's played by Roy Scheider. He, you know, he's super likable and he's, oh, and he's a genius. Well, yeah, guys, I, I, I'm not looking for verisimilitude in this film. I'm not looking for absolute truth. I'm looking for, I'm looking for beauty and art, and I'm looking for people grappling with certain things. And I think the thing I love about this movie, especially when it gets to the, the more hallucinogenic dance sequences, as as he is dying in the film, um, I love that it gets to the heart of what really struck with me, which is someone who is just doing all this stuff, they're not apologetic, and then it becomes too late. (laughs) When it's too late, it is literally too late, and you can go through all of the bargaining and anger and, you know, that they they go through a a rift throughout this movie is... um, A rift throughout this movie is there's a joke in the let's just call it the Lenny Bruce film that he's editing where he talks about this, this girl who's come up with the five stages of death. Um, and then he, over the course of this movie, he's talking to his own angel of death, uh, played by Jessica Lange. And when it gets to the end, he starts to go through all of those things as well, but he goes through them in the cadence of song and in the cadence of musical numbers. And I find that that use of that is extraordinarily affecting. I, I got extremely emotional at the end of this movie. Uh, I, I knew where it was going. I know how it ends, but there is something to the, to the truth of, um, sometimes reality is best understood through kind of myth and through narrative. Uh, and rather than just see this person on an operating table, maybe, you know, bargaining for their life or, or regretting that they didn't take it seriously enough. And now they're at an inevitable conclusion to do that through song and to do that through these incredible, incredible musical numbers, um, makes it hit harder for me at home. Uh, and the fact that Fosse is able to do that is able to make movement so incredible on the film. Uh, I, I find staggering every time I've seen this film, I've liked it more and more. Um, I think I gave it four and a half stars. The first time I've seen it, I've given it five stars every time since. Um, and if for nothing else, I will call out the first of all. I will call out the sequence of <laughs> when they're they're regrouping the song, and it finally occurred to me after my third viewing of this that the one lead dancer is Valeria from Conan the Barbarian. I did not realize that, and my brain finally put the two pieces together. So if you're a Conan fan, you'll probably spot that right away. I didn't, um, but there is a sequence where he's talking to his ex-wife. And she is playing like the star of the film. I'm assuming maybe she's the Verdon stand-in. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. And uh, she's dancing to him as she's arguing all of his points away. Um, He's angry. He wants to change the song. And she's practicing in her own room on her own. And she does this thing where 
she gets on the floor and she crawls toward him, but she's on her back and she's using like her legs suggestively to kind of approach him and he's backing away. And it is one of the most sensual things I have ever seen. And just by doing that movement, you're communicating this entire history between these two people who were in love, had a daughter, got divorced, still have feelings, but won't act on those feelings. The fact that Fosse can put that into a dance movement and just evoke all of that is is the reason why I think this might be one of my favorite movies of all time. It, it's, and that's just one example of dozens, I think, throughout the course of all that jazz. I wanted to circle back to a comment you made about uh, Fosse or th- critics thinking that Fosse is going too easy on himself. And like, I'm would not necessarily disagree with that, but I'd say that, cause I think that there's a possibility that the self critiques in this movie might be proactively or preemptively done to try and ward off other people saying it. Like if I say the thing about myself that I'm a piece of shit, then that stops you from saying it. But that, that being said, this is largely a movie that is about how much Bob Fosse is a big piece of shit <laughs> made is. by Bob Fosse. <laughs> and like the, I, while musicals aren't necessarily like the thing that I live and breathe by, I, the, I tend to notice a lot of people who aren't into musicals saying that it's corny, um, that, that musicals can be corny. Right. And this is a movie about a, about a, about a man who to his own detriment has absolutely fucked his way through all of Broadway and has lied and cheated and treated people terribly and just is the absolute worst as depicted in the movie. And then at the same time, and often doing so in the context of putting on these like amazing dance numbers and whether they're just the, the, whether it's the performances themselves or the way that you're right, he does very effectively use the language of film to escape the reality of watching someone on a stage like he he keeps the rhythm of the songs going even while he's doing amazing edits um that you you couldn't do in a in a theater environment um and especially when you get to the back half of the movie where he is um he's in the hospital and going through the stages of dying and sort of reflecting on his life the way that it sort of hits this delirious fever pitch while again under the score the the the, the premise of like i did terrible things i'm a, i'm a bad person while just every sin every like <laughs> every synapse in your brain is firing at the same time is, is magical. Um, it is like, I, I, I would defy anyone to come at this movie and try and say it was corny. Oh yeah. Not corny at all. And I think, uh, you know, he, he shows what he thinks of kind of the middle of the road pedestrian Broadway show, right? There's, um, and he doesn't do it with the music part. He does it with the editing where he's getting yelled at by one of his producers that he spent seven months editing this stupid film. Like, just get it done. It, it already works. This is the way this is supposed to be. And then Gideon doesn't want to hear it. He walks away and says, oh, watch the beginning again. I uh, made a change to it. I, I think it's better. And he walks away and leaves and the producer sits down and he just, he's so mad because he's like, motherfucker, it is better. It, like, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's Gideon's like self-assured, it's, it's Fosse's self-assured way of like, I'm a dick and I do dickish things. But in his mind, hey, look, the end result speaks for itself, right? I reinvented kind of modern jazz. Like he invented jazz hands, basically. He's the guy who came up with jazz hands. That's his dance style. He's the one who came up with all of these things. He had done cabaret before, um, the, the the Joel Gray Liza Minnelli adaptation. He put Chicago on the map on Broadway, right, when he was putting that together. Um, this is a guy who knows his shit. I'm not surprised kind of thinking through something you had said clued me into well, of, of, of course he understands innately the language of film. He understands innately the language of rhythm. I mean, this is a guy who knows rhythm probably better than anybody else at the time. So the rhythm of editing, the rhythm of pacing, the rhythm of movement within, you know, this square uh, probably came very naturally to him. Um, we haven't talked a whole lot about Roy Scheider, but one of the things I love about Scheider in this film too is he he's a card. He he's definitely a card. He's at his most charming and genuine in the beginning when he's talking to the angel of death um, and admitting like 
yeah, I say I love you all the time. It works. Right? It gets me what I want. Um, but then he, you know, then it shows where he is with his girlfriend and it shows, you know, the ga- the head games that he plays with her and then how he treats his daughter. <clears throat> Probably one of my favorite moments in the film because of how I had to wrestle with it a little bit is when he's alone with his daughter and uh, she's trying to talk to him and he's got to focus on what he's doing. So she dances with him. And she dances with him in a way that he's creating a film. He's creating a musical that is very adult. Like when you see what he turns this show into, it's full on nudity. There's simulated sex everywhere, but he's got to figure out the move. So he's using his very young teenage daughter. Um, So at first glance, he's like, come on here, wrap your legs around me, do this and do that. And they're dancing and having a conversation and for me, and this may not play this way for everybody, I get it, but it was astounding to watch that scene slowly morph from me in my head going, this is making me slightly uncomfortable, this is not how I would act with my daughter, to all this guy fucking knows is dance. And he can't communicate any other way. So the only time you see him really truly bond with his daughter are during moments of dance. It's during the moment where she's dancing with him as he tries to figure out a choreographed sequence. And then it happens again when the daughter and the girlfriend put on a show for him in his, in his um, apartment. They're like the two moments where he's kind of genuinely at ease and himself. He's working and he's with his family for a brief moment. And I love both of those sequences for how they slowly kind of turn him into a little bit of a human being. It's too late, right? The, the movie knows that you can't redeem this guy because he doesn't want to be redeemed. And he, you know, and it gets to where it gets to. But Fosse is smart to put these wonderful little moments in that are a little bit challenging and at the same time, show just enough of a dimension to Scheider's character that it makes it all the more painful when the ending does occur. Um, and I don't think, again, it's to me, it's a credit to Scheider that he's able to do these different turns and these different phases, just like he did in Saucerer, to do that here under a very different context. I want to talk about the the final sequence, the Bye Bye Love uh, secret. That, that to because... T- it it is technically like it's the last big showpiece of the of the movie where he is sort of like going into going and swinging and of course it's um you, you mentioned the repeating sequence of how he wakes up every morning with the dextrodrine the shower the eye drops etc um one of the other recurring bits that they set up to an amazing payoff is this um this guy on tv who gives the same speech about his friend the wild humanitarian the humanitarian mm. he does it and it's and it's fake showbiz bullshit and he does it like multiple times times to the point that they're he and his girlfriend are like reciting it every time they see it but for the the big uh the big finale uh is led into by a sort of and this is again at the, by this point he is like on the hospital bed he is dying um and it's led into by among other things this this uh this TV announcer basically doing ben a Vereen, the the very yeah. famous song and dance man Vereen. <laughs> yeah he uh he 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 basically gives the real version of that speech which is that he kind of sucks he never really cared about anyone the i didn't really know him that well um <clears throat> the 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 honest version of it and then they launch into um the probably like J- just possibly one of the most delirious uh song and dance numbers i've seen in a movie ever <laughs> and 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 the best part about it is is that like lest you think that he's being sentimental about his own death the second the second that the song ends it cuts to a, a, a <laughs> it cuts to a shot of a of a body bag being zipped up and then cut to end again this is this this is now like the third movie in two episodes where the ending is just one big punch in the face yeah like you want to talk about you want to talk about bob fossey being too sentimental the movie ends with uh uh after the after the big emotional catharsis of everything he's gone through uh it all just ends with uh a, a corpse being zipped up in a body bag 
Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's such a great ending. I love the ending, and I love that it pulls no punches with like it's obviously a hallucination. It's a dream sequence, but he and it gives him the the opportunity bye bye love to say goodbye to everyone because he knows he's about to die. He's gotten to the acceptance, but that acceptance is a complete hallucination, right? Right? He doesn't actually say goodbye to any of his family or to the, the, the people who may have cared about him. It is, it is a huge sucker punch. And it's telling that after that, there's not even any sound. It's just the sound of that zipper going yeah, up. It's and it's just so obviously, sound, yeah. yeah, it's just, and it's just, you see, it's him just in the body bag and it cuts. Ah, it's such a great ending. Um, I'll note just a couple pieces of trivia uh, because it has probably special meaning for us. Uh, All That Jazz uh, won the Palm d'Or the year that it was released. It actually tied with Akira Kurosawa's Kagamusha, um, which uh, is a movie that I don't think we've covered yet, so we'll probably eventually have to do a part two to Kurosawa and uh, get that film under our belts along with a couple others. But, uh, you know... Just a super acclaimed film. Unlike Saucerer, this had a lot of awards, a lot of praise. Um, it was a huge success. And again, it, it makes me wonder why, when you have Jaws, Saucerer, The French Connection, all that jazz, like Roy Scheider, to me, should have been way bigger. He should have been in a lot more things. He should have been the presence that uh, that he was in these these films. The guy was always proven to be um, up for whatever challenge he was was given when he's able to sort of bring in the range that he has across these two movies and something like, you know, Jaws or French, uh, French connection, uh, it just, it just leaves you wanting more. Um, and you know, I guess that's just where we have to end it. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we end it and jump into, uh, our recommendation section, John. Sounds good. One thing that I forgot to mention uh, before we head into our recommendations was that we didn't really talk too much about the air erotica uh, section of all that jazz. And <laughs> we can either talk or not talk about it if you like. But I think that that segment probably does clinch the title for sweatiest movie uh, of yeah. the two that we talked about today. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I think there's no doubt. Like, I think we're both saying if you have not seen either of these films, you need to see these films. Um, and I mean, for all that, for for saucer it's very much for the bridge sequence but for all that jazz it has to be for the air erotica <laughs> sequence which is probably the best sequence in the film <laughs> that is probably one of the sexiest things i've seen in a movie just <laughs> it, and it's a dance sequence like it is 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 it is something special it um, absolutely is <laughs> i guess we should ask the question we came into this episode postulating that the uh question of is this the first time we're going to do an episode where we put both movies up for our wall of fame so i'm going to now ask you the question what do you think so if if it were purely up to me these both of these films would very most certainly sit on on my uh mountain of gloriousness john uh but uh in order for that to actually happen for the purposes of cinema duel i'm going to need your agreement and consensus this is like a you know how you have to have two keys to turn on the nuclear exactly weapon. you can't you can only you can't do it one by yourself you have to have both people turn the key at the same time do um, you have two keys do you only have one key i mean we can only in, in, induct one if that's what we want to do but i put forth both of these as candidates for the mountain of gloriousness sir my while it would be hard for me to pinpoint an exact um, way that these two movies because like i don't like to necessarily just take movies that i've always loved and have always cherished and just throw those up there right these are usually movies that we find in the context of doing the podcast and i can't pinpoint how these two movies necessarily fit into um i discovered this movie because of this podcast i can't necessarily find it but it is these are not definitely neither of these movies are movies that i've had a let's say lifelong history with these are definitely movies in like the last 10 years that i've watched Um, and and so i'm just going to i'm not going to fight it i'm just going to let the good thing happen and absolutely these both of these movies need to go up. Hooray! Hooray. <laughs> so glad to hear that. Yeah. No, it's it's it would be insane not to, I think. All right. So for film recommendations, uh, we didn't establish who was going first, so I'm just going to say it. 
I'll go first. And my recommendation, uh, which should need no one's uh, approval because it's already made a billion dollars, is the Barbie movie. Um, it uh, It is a movie... Like, I mean, Greta Gorig has in that video where she listed like 30, 40 movies or whatever as her inspiration, all that jazz is definitely on there. Um, and we could talk about how the, the, the like specific. Is there an erotica sequence in the Barbie movie? Because now I have to stop everything <laughs> I'm doing and go see the movie. <laughs> no, but there, the, the way that the movie relates to death, I think has some parallels or, or there, there, there's, there's more parallels than you would expect for a Barbie movie. Um, uh, as, as it relates to the protagonist uh, thing about the possibility of their own mortality. Um, but the Barbie movie is a movie that is just bursting at the seams with uh, production, colors, ideas, thoughts. Just it has the vibe of someone basically throwing every single possible thing they have into all, like dedicating all their resources to like, we're going to just make this one gigantic thing and it fucking whips ass. There's no part of the movie that I don't like. Um, I mean, I, I liked Oppenheimer too, but uh, I feel like Barbie is something the, the Barbie movie in particular is, uh, is something special that sort of like, it just sort of, it, it hits so many buttons and I, I, I love them all. Uh, it's uh and and of course the world has agreed with me because again it's in, it's it's in, insanely successful. So congrats to Greta Gerwig, that movie rules. <laughs> I I still have not seen it. Um, it's something that I'm definitely going to see. Uh, need to just find the time to bring my wife as well. Um, I will very quickly on my side because I, I know I'm going to talk about a couple of things, but I will address some of the stuff that was laid out in the beginning of this episode. So The Exorcist was another movie that I saw and f- highly, highly recommend. Um, y- you know, you, you could do a lot worse if you want to celebrate the works of William Friedkin than to just go in order and see The French Connection, The Exorcist and uh, Sorcerer. You also, things like Killer Joe, Bug, To Live and Die in L.A., The Boys in the Band. I mean, this guy had made so many great movies. Maybe Stay Away from Jade, which is a terrible movie, but, you know, the guy definitely had more hits than than misses. Um, I will say the reason why I put Sorcerer above The Exorcist in terms of, like, best William Freakin' movie is The Exorcist is phenomenal. There, it, it does horror, especially in its time, did horror like no one else did horror. It took it very seriously, um, even though it was about a demon possessing a young girl and exorcisms. You know, you can believe as much of that as you want. It doesn't matter because the film takes the conceit extremely seriously. Um, beautifully photographed. The only thing that doesn't work, and John, I don't know when's the last time you saw The Exorcist, but <clears throat> the character of the director... There is a character in this movie because um, Reagan's mother, um, Chris O'Neill, she's an actress and she's in Georgetown because they're filming a movie. The director is such a scumbag asshole. Like he's drunk. He's making terrible jokes all the time. There's at one point he gets mad at her servant because he thinks he's a Nazi <laughs> like it comes out of nowhere. It is so bad. It is so distracting that when that part comes on and he's there like multiple times, thankfully he dies. Um, <laughs> thankfully the director dies uh, under mysterious circumstances, but uh, it just completely takes me out of the movie. I don't know why it's there. It's, it's terrible and it kills what is otherwise to me a perfect film. Uh, so that's why I think Saucer is better because Saucer does not have any single character or part that takes me out of the movie like that character does repeatedly. So that being said, I gave, I still gave it five stars, even though really it would be 4.75, but letterbox doesn't do decimals like that, but it's, it's a, it's a classic. Go see it. Now, three more movies. I'm going to very quickly touch on. Um, I did not go see Barbie, but I did go see the Meg to the trench yesterday because I wanted to see Jason Statham fight a bunch of monster sharks. I wanted him to hear, I wanted to hear him say Megalodon. He does say it, but it's not nearly as fun as when he says it in the first movie. Whereas the first movie knows exactly what it wants to be. It is a pulp film about a rescue diver who has to fight off a Megalodon. 
this movie gets so confused with this plot. It puts in an hour of exposition. It introduces human bad guys. Jason Statham turns from a deep sea rescue diver to a martial arts eco-terrorist warrior. So it's like kills off almost all of the original cast. It, it's 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 dreadful. It's dreadful, John. It's it's a dreadful movie that finally finds its footing in the last like forty minutes because in the last forty minutes. He actually fights the Megalodon. And then it becomes wonderful. And then it becomes wonderful because there are multiple Megs. There are giant squids. There's these weird, swimmy, lizardy things. And it's a hoot. But it's an hour and 45-minute movie. It spends the first hour talking about strip mining the Marianas Trench and elements to make computer chips. And, oh, my God, no one cares. So... Uh, don't go see that. Um, I am also probably in the minority of I also finally saw Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And uh, meh. It's okay. <laughs> I love the first Guardians of the Galaxy. I, I'm one of the few who really, really like Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I fully acknowledge I am in Marvel fatigue mode. Uh, this is worlds better than the last couple of Marvel films that has come out. But since the last couple of Marvel films that have come out were the Doctor Strange movie and the Ant-Man movie, that's not saying much to have a movie be just adequate. Um, So I may be a little hard on Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but my entire family was disappointed in it. Um, There are a couple of funny pieces. It is the first Marvel movie to use the F word, um, the first MCU movie, and that part is hilarious. Uh, So kudos to you. But I also saw The Flash, which everyone hated and also uses the F word and I think uses it better. And stupidly, I kind of enjoyed The Flash movie just as much as I enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy. So weigh that if you uh, <laughs> if, if you're still judging whether or not to trust my uh, my opinion as a nerd podcaster movie person none of that well, matters have... though <laughs> well, sorry what yeah oh no i was just gonna say I, I this this fills me with all kinds of wonderful feelings as uh, as my wife has been asking me to watch guardians of the galaxy 3 so look it's not it's not it's not bad it's just not good it is just middle of the road. It does what it needs to do. Um, it has a couple of surprises. It has a couple of jokes, but I don't think it has the, I don't think it has the bones of the first two. So do with that what you will. But John, none of that matters because this morning I was informed that a movie I had very much been looking forward to had finally arrived on streaming because I missed it in the theater because I'm still not really 100% back to movies quite yet. I'm, I'm getting there. Um, so today I saw Asteroid City, the latest from Wes Anderson. Oh, uh, shit. Starring everyone who has ever been in a Wes Anderson movie, but also stars Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Steve Carell. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Maya Hawke from everyone now knows from Stranger Things. Um, Rupert Friend is in it. Uh, the joke, uh, the guy from Pulp, the band Pulp is in it. Um, this is the best Wes Anderson movie he's done in years. Um, it is talking about like, it is the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson movie. Uh, it plays with structure. It plays with framing and aspect ratios. It has animation. <laughs> um, uh, and it is quietly devastating emotionally. Um, it made me realize I had read some reviews. So, you know, thanks to everyone who wrote so many great things about this movie to help clue me in. But all of Wes Anderson's movies, you know, everyone talks about how artificial and how structured and framed his movies are. But all of his movies also seem to be about people trying to impose tight, tight control on their lives and then not having that control. Um, and this movie is, it exemplifies that. This is a movie about loss of control. This is about loss of love, loss of life. Uh, and it's also about what you do when you, when that happens, how do you recover from that? Um, and talk about ties to Barbie. Um, John, I will just send this to you. I, I think you are a Wes Anderson fan. You might not be like as adoring of him as I am. Uh, this features a cameo by Margot Robbie, and it is the, it is the devastating scene of the film. 
It is beautiful. It is wonderful. She, in her one scene, steals it completely and then walks away. And I was left weeping. It's just a gorgeous movie. It's the return of Jason Schwartzman as like a lead in the film as opposed to a supporting character. Tom Hanks is phenomenal. He is surly and mean and just wonderful. Steve Carell uh, late came to the movie. He replaced Bill Murray when Bill Murray wasn't able to do it. And he definitely is playing the Bill Murray role and he plays it very, very well. Um, but the whole movie is just fantastic. Uh, and it is also ostensibly his first science fiction film. Uh, so, you know, I won't go into details as to why that is or what it is about it, but this reinvigorated my faith in modern movies. Uh, the fact that he can come out after doing two films that I largely, you know, I, the French dispatch, I wasn't a huge fan of. And I think the one before that was Isle of Dogs, which I liked. And it, had one scene that particularly devastated me, but that was a very personal thing. And the rest of the movie to me was just kind of, ah, it, it is what it is. Um, but asteroid city is him firing on every single cylinder. It is the best thing in years from him. I, I have, I don't know if I'll be able to make it out to the theater for that one, but I am breathless in anticipation of watching it. So that it, that is actually encouraging. That is making me feel good. So thank you for that. It is. I, I don't know what the streaming services there are in Canada, but it just premiered on Peacock here in America. Uh, um, yes. Uh, Peacock does not like Canada. Uh, yeah. I would like that. That is a thing I'm going to go to the court of public opinion on. Uh, <laughs> is that? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Um <clears throat> But yeah, I think that'll probably wrap it up for this particular uh, episode uh, as we sort of get to the end of our summer, having thankfully survived. This is the first summer where uh, both myself and my wife are working. And so the question of what do the kids do for the summer has been a real trial by fire. Um uh, for us but we've managed to so far survive and uh by the time this posts uh it will be largely over so yay for everyone <laughs> in the meantime uh i don't think we i don't think i have any ideas for our next episode so we'll do that the planning for that one off uh, air this time but chris it's uh, a pleasure as always to get to chat with you hope you stay safe watch some good movies and that goes for everyone else as well same here. Same to you, sir. Everyone be safe, be well, and we'll see you next time. Bye.